Well, it's great to be with you guys today. I really mean that. I, I love Jonathan and Kyle. And um, I, it's, I, I did speak at Mosaic back when it was at um, Workplay. And so it's good to be here again with you guys. Um, turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Uh, this is a message I just gave last week at the church where um, I'm, as, as Kyle said, an associate pastor, uh, Fullness. And um, we just finished our Advent series, and this is that lone story, the one story we have in the Bible of Jesus as a, as a boy. And so um, it followed up with our Advent series. Let me read it for us. Turn to Luke chapter 4, I mean, sorry, 2, uh, verses 41, and I'll read to the end in verse 52. So God's word says, Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Um, I was reading this story. I've been married uh, 12 years this coming Sunday uh, to my wife, Jordan. We have a little four-year-old. And I feel like, you know, if if Jordan got worried sick looking for me, I'd respond something like, why were you looking for me? Did you not know I must be at fullness? That's basically my life. I know that most people, when they've gone missing, they're not at church. Certainly not these days, right? Um, but Jesus has to stay. He doesn't want to leave the temple, even though his parents are gone. He just lets them leave, right? So let me recap the story just a little bit. Uh, Mary and Joseph are searching for Jesus. They're searching the city streets. You just kind of imagine they're combing the streets. They're going to different marketplaces, probably the various gates of the city, hoping Jesus, I mean, maybe, hopefully, you know, that the worst hasn't happened, that he hasn't been trafficked in some way. I mean, they're probably assuming the worst case scenarios of what could have happened to their 12-year-old boy. Um, And they're paralyzed by fear for a few days, it seems, until finally the thought occurs to them, do you think our son might be at the temple? So they go there, and they find him there. Um, and it's almost as though they forget who they're looking for, right? They almost forget who their son is. A point the young Jesus reminds them of, more or less, when he says, why are you looking for me? Did you not know I must be at my father's house in the text? Verse 43 says that uh, Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, which gives the impression that um, he just let his parents leave him, like totally fully aware of what was going on. Um, 
and didn't make any attempt to catch up. There were really only two roads back to Nazareth. There was the road through Samaria, which every good Jew uh, dodged and went around the Jordan. Um, and so he knew how to find them, but he didn't make any effort to. He wanted to be in the temple. He didn't want to lose this opportunity to stay connected to the congregational worship of the temple, to stay connected to the teaching of the law by the experts. Um, and that was, he wasn't done, is kind of what you feel in this. Um, he must have known his parents were going to come back for him, right? At some point, mom and dad are going to realize I'm not with them, and they're going to come back for me. But even Jesus was surprised that their first thought wasn't, oh, our son Jesus, he's got to be in the temple. Um, let's put up this quote by Mark Strauss, if we can. Um, a scholar, Mark Strauss, says, Luke includes this story not to fill in details for the curious reader, but to reveal Jesus' real human growth, both spiritual and physical. So let me unpack uh, the ideas behind this quote a little bit. And in the ancient church, there were lots of stories, these sorts of legends of the boy Jesus. And in these sort of apocryphal stories, he's doing miraculous things. He's saying really wise things that blow adults away. And none of those stories make it into the Bible. The only story of Jesus as a boy that makes it into the Bible is this one. And what Mark Strauss is getting at is Jesus, or Luke doesn't include this story simply to like satisfy the curious reader, desperate to know what Jesus could have been like as a boy. That's not really what's going on here. There's a very real intent, and it's to show that what was happening between his birth, we have several chapters of Jesus' birth in Luke, and then the beginning of his public ministry in the very next chapter, is that Jesus was growing. Jesus was developing in those 30 years. He wasn't this fully formed human being, fully developed human being. He was growing, he was developing. And um, in this scene, we find him asking questions. He's remaining submissive. He's got this really submissive heart. It's interesting. He's sitting at the feet of the rabbis, taking the posture of a disciple. He's submissive to his father's call. I must be in the temple. And at the end of the story, he's submissive to Mary and Joseph, going back with them to Nazareth. But let's put up, I have a few just things I pull out of the passage um, that show Jesus' development uh, in this story. So a few things I just kind of pulled out are, one, we see an appreciation for sacred spaces in Jesus as a boy. He is drawn to this, this sacred space, namely the temple. Um, he's drawn to, to gathering with God's people for corporate worship. Um, let me just take a, a, a second here. You know, it's interesting, Jesus grew up, sometimes we miss this, in a very devout Jewish family. Um, in the story right before, when he's dedicated the temple, it says, after Mary and Joseph had done everything according to the law of the Lord. They only left after they did everything according to the law of the Lord. And then in the beginning of this story, we learn that they go to Passover every year. It's part of their annual family tradition to make a pilgrimage to Passover, for the Passover feast in Jerusalem. And perhaps they went to other festivals as well. Um, and then Jesus... When they're done, he doesn't want to leave. He's desperate to stay, connected to the life of temple worship. And this isn't something that Jesus just outgrows either. In Luke chapter 4, we read that Jesus went to the synagogue 
as every Sabbath, as was his custom. I mean, Jesus was a church-going guy, which is interesting to me because there's this kind of like uh, popular presentation of Jesus as this sort of like rogue itinerant preacher who had this anti-authority chip on his shoulders and just his whole ministry was like anti the system, anti-religious observance, and I just want to burn it all down and go out in the wilderness with my friends. Um, that's actually not true. Jesus went to the Sabbath and went to the synagogue every Sabbath. Um, and if that was what Jesus was all about, then why, we could ask, after Jesus ascends and goes to heaven, are his disciples going to the temple for morning prayer every single day? It's because he actually wasn't against religious observance. Now, he had a lot of critique, didn't he? He had a lot of critique over the religious system, but he wasn't against the system as a whole. So all that to say, we see that. We also see a love for the Bible, don't we, in this story. I mean, at 12 years old, he loves the Bible. I mean, let that be a call to us, right, as, as parents especially. He loves scripture. We see an inquisitive and sharp mind in Jesus as a boy. In the next slide, um, we see a submissive heart in him, submissive at every level to the, the rabbis, to mom and dad, to his heavenly father, growing in wisdom, Luke 2.52, growing in favor with God, growing in favor with people. So let me pull up verses 39 and 40 again. Actually, I don't think we've read this yet. This is after he's dedicated as a baby at the temple. And when they performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then verse 52 says, Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. So in these early years, if you want to sum up the most important things Luke wants his readers to know about Jesus in those 30 years before he became a public minister was that he was growing in wisdom all that time and he was growing in favor all that time. That's what comes out of the text. Um, now, there's a kind of wisdom that we all know about, right, that just sort of comes to you, that you acquire through life experiences. Um, let me just put up a few of these I've found by this person written anonymously. Uh, first, nothing is foolproof to a talented fool. Amen? I mean, you don't need 50 years to learn this one. You get that one by, like, ninth grade. Like, there's people who, who are really just idiots. Like, they'll find a way, right? Number two... The early bird gets, may get the worm, but the second mouse gets the cheese. Sometimes it's better to let people just take the fall for you. That's true. Uh, third, borrow money from a pessimist. They don't expect it back. Fourth, at fir if at first you don't succeed, destroy all evidence that you tried. Some of y'all, like this is, like, raise, let me see a show of hands. Like, this is your job. Like, this is where you work. If you make a mistake, destroy, Kyle, don't raise your hand. This, this is like where you live, right? I can't tell you how many people I talk to are like, you know, if I make a mistake, I just erase all evidence, right? Uh, fifth, experience is something you don't uh, get until just after you need it. Sixth, the sooner you fall behind, the more time you have to catch up. And seventh, if at first you don't succeed, then skydiving is not for you. So 
uh, these are all, all maybe examples of like things you just kind of pick up through life experience, but the wisdom that Jesus exhibits in this story, or that we're to see in this story as a boy in the temple, is that he grew in a wisdom around a knowledge of scripture and discerning the purposes of God. Those two things in particular. Um, and this scene of Jesus as a boy shows us, you know, he's sitting at the feet of the teachers, the rabbis, the experts of the law, um, the rabbis who themselves would be standing while everyone else sat at their feet. Um, and Jesus, in doing so, is taking the posture of a disciple. I mean, it's remarkable, right? He's the son of God taking the posture of a disciple before human teachers of the Bible he inspired. And rabbis often taught in this, you know, question and answer format. So we see Jesus here. He's listening intently. He's asking questions, hungry to learn the scriptures. And, and then as the rabbis are fielding questions to the audience, he's just blowing everyone away with his understanding and his insight into the Old Testament. Now, uh, the fact that Luke 2.52 says that he grew in favor with God tells us that this wisdom around the scriptures that Jesus grew in, wasn't, it wasn't that he just read the Bible, and it wasn't even just that he had great insight and understanding of the Bible. He lived the scriptures. And because of that, he grew in favor with God. Wisdom, as you know, has to do with applied knowledge, right? And that's what Jesus did with his knowledge. He learned God's law and lived God's law. In fact, that was a major part of his mission to the earth. You know, Jesus' mission to the earth wasn't just to come die, right? His mission was first to come live and live well, to live perfectly so that upon his death, he could be that, that sacrifice that we require. Um, Galatians 4, 4 through 5 records the Apostle Paul saying that in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that they might receive adoption as sons. It was critical that Jesus know God's law and know it really well, absorb God's express commands and desires for humanity, and then live it out. And that's what we see here in, in this story at 12 years old. He's absorbing God's law, getting it, understanding it, having answers and insight on it, but then living it well and walking in favor with God through these days. He grew in wisdom, Luke says. And his life was marked by wisdom, as was his death. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 says that Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. The legacy of his life and death was wisdom. The legacy of the cross was power and wisdom, a wisdom that was lost on the Greeks who saw it as foolish, the Jews saw it as weak. The wisdom and the power of the cross was lost on them because in many ways it's otherworldly. Let's come back to the story for a second. Verse 48 says, And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. 
you can feel the anguish. And he said to them, why are you looking for me? Did you not know I must be in my father's house? Um, so it's been pointed out, I didn't know this until studying this passage, and I found this interesting, that um, in, in the Greek, uh, original Greek sentence here, uh, it literally says, did you not know I would be in thee of my father? So the word house is m just missing. And this is an expression um, that you'd find just in normal Greek talk, where if the context uh, demanded it, then you would supply the noun required by the context. And it's well documented that this expression, you know, I could say, did you not know I would be in thee of Kyle, uh, Kyle's, then that would mean um, if the context demanded it, I would be at Kyle's house, which is interesting because we have a very similar English phrase, right? Like if I said, I'll be over at Kyle's, it's almost exactly the same, right? What's a little different is this expression could also mean uh, to be about someone's business or to be about someone's affairs. So I could say, did you not know I'd be about Kyle's? And if the context warranted it, that could mean, did you know I'd be about Kyle's business, which is what I'm doing right now? Just kidding. <laughs> um, and so, now looking at the context, um, it seems pretty clear that Mary and Joseph are looking for their son. Um, he's at the temple. The temple is the house of God. And so the context seems to imply that the primary meaning is house, right? Which is why most translators say exactly that. Didn't you know I'd be, I must be in my father's house. But it could be, and this is kind of my theology of scripture showing, uh, there could be a double meaning here. And I think, I, I think it would make so much sense to the heart of scripture if Jesus is both saying, didn't you know I'd be at my father's house, my father's dwelling place, um, and also didn't you know I must be about my father's business? Didn't you know I must be about my father's business? And this double meaning might in part explain why in verse 50, Mary and Joseph don't understand the saying that Jesus mentions there. So in verse 48, Mary says, your father, referring to Joseph, right? So even though Jesus was conceived in Mary by the Holy Spirit, Mary um, and Joseph saw Jesus as Joseph's son. Your father and I have been in great distress looking for you. And Jesus' Jesus's attentiveness to his heavenly father's voice, of course, has caused this emotional turmoil and pain in Mary and Joseph. Um, to the point where I think, like, if this story were not about Jesus, we'd probably say, what an insensitive young man to treat his parents this way. But it is about Jesus, so we're probably not going there in our minds. And yet Jesus is appealing to a higher authority, right, in this story. This is the first time in the narrative of Luke that Jesus refers to what he must do. Didn't you know, I must be in my father's house, he says. Already, by the age of 12, Jesus is living with this sense of calling. I must be in my father's house. And he's not talking about his father Joseph's house back in Nazareth. I must be about my father's business. And he's not talking about Joseph's family carpentry business back in Nazareth. According to Jewish tradition, a Jewish boy um, was responsible to 
observe and keep all the law of Moses at the age of 13. Jesus is 12 in this story. And already he's dialoguing and listening to the experts in the Torah, hungry to know what God requires of him, hungry to live as God would have him live, living with this sense of what he must do as he responds to his heavenly father's voice. He feels this intense moral obligation, even before socially that would be maybe expected of him. Um, let me just do a crude transition real quick. Um, so my wife, Jordan, and I have a four-year-old named Adeline. And um, a, few year, uh, sorry, a few months ago in October, Adeline turned four. And uh, she asked for a unicorn birthday party. And uh, so we had a, a unicorn birthday party, right? Yeah, as they do. Yeah. Um, we had a unicorn birthday party. And Adeline um, got this... Um, like, this unicorn that's like three or four times her size. It's literally this big. I put her on it and fly her around the house. Um, we literally have no clue to what room this unicorn belongs because it fits in no room. But um, we got this, this uh, big unicorn and then like four others, and so we have a family. One day, we were, uh, me and Adeline, a few days after her birthday, we're playing uh, with our unicorn family, and... I pick up one of the unicorns, and in my best like attempt at a horse sound, I'm like, nay! And she shoots me this look uh, and goes, no, that's not what horses say. And I was like, oh, well, OK, that's, that's my best try. And she goes, no, horses say nay. Um, and I was like, oh, well, like, yeah, like horses say nay, but like real horses sound a little bit more like what daddy said. And she goes, no, horses say nay, Aaliyah told me. Aaliyah's her five-year-old cousin. Um, and so I was like, oh, okay, Adeline, well, it's, it's true, like Aaliyah said, like horses say nay, uh, but like real horses sound more like what daddy said. And she goes, no, horses say nay, Aaliyah told me. And so I'm sitting here thinking like, okay, so like what higher authority can I appeal to to adjudicate between me and my daughter here? So I pull up YouTube and I type in horse noises. <laughs> And I hit play, and we listen to horse noises for about 15 seconds, and you know, I can, I'm looking at her face, and I can kind of see, like, okay, she's, she's realizing daddy's right about this, and Aaliyah's wrong. And uh, after about 15 seconds of horse noises, I stop it, and I say, you see, Adeline, horses sound more like what, what daddy said than like what Aaliyah said. She thinks about it, and she goes, but we're playing with unicorns. Um, again, it's a crude transition, a little bit for some comic relief, but Jesus, the highest authority, the highest voice in Jesus' life was his father's voice, and even his own father uh, and his own mother did not have a greater pull on him. From a young age, um, he's living with this holy conviction, and his parents um, don't really understand who they have, right? Jesus is surprised that his parents um, didn't go straight to the temple um, when they came looking for him. Fast forward about 20 years. 20 years from this time, um, we're in the temple 
or sorry, we're from, from this time in the temple, Jesus is preaching in this house, it seems, from the story. Mary and her sons, Jesus' brothers, come to see him. And um, they can't get through because the crowd's so thick. So I just, just kind of imagine, you know, the, the brothers are saying, hey, let, let us in, let us through. He's, he's our brother, we want to see him. Or, you know, he's my son, I, w- I want to see my son. And word kind of trickles through the crowd up to the people um, up front. And, and at some point, someone up towards the front says, hey, Jesus, your mother and brothers are outside desiring to see you. Um, there it is. And so um, it's fascinating because what you would expect, what all of us, I think, would expect is for Jesus to say something to the effect of, okay, everybody, go home, come back tomorrow, let me have an evening with my family, travel this way to see me. Or at the very least, to say something like, hey, Art, let's make room, let him in, come on, let's let him in. Instead, Jesus says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. And then the story ends. And then Luke just just moves on to the story of Jesus calming the storm. I mean, it is abrupt. At a narrative level, Luke is wanting his readers to grapple with the abrasiveness of this scene that leaves Mary, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus' own brothers exactly where they were, the same distance from Jesus as when the story began. I'll tell you who my mom is. My mom's the person who hears the word of God and does it. I'll tell you who my brothers are. They're the people who hear the word of God and does what God says. I'll tell you who my father is. He's the one who inhabits this temple, and I must be about his affairs. He tells the crowd, those who hear the word of God, those who posture themselves before the word of God, kind of like Jesus did at the age of 12, sitting before the feet of the rabbis, desperate to learn and hear and absorb the scriptures and the word of God taught. He tells the crowd, if you do what the word of God says to do, if your conviction is, I must be about my father's business. I must dwell where my father dwells. Those are the kinds of people I call family, Jesus says. And that story from Luke chapter 8, I think, stripes a a resident theme of the one found in Luke 2, as Jesus is a boy in the temple. And it's this, that even the holy family of Mary Joseph and Jesus displayed in nativity is probably still up in some of your living rooms. Even that holy family doesn't have an advantage you don't have. They don't get some head start that you don't have. Some edge. Um, Let's put up verse 20 again, just real quick. It says, And he was told, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside, desiring to see you. That phrase, desiring to see you, is striking to me. Um, It's especially striking because of a truth that it underscores, which is a a bit alarming, and it's that Jesus isn't necessarily moved by my desire to see him. Right? In a similar passage in John 12, 20 through 22, it says... 
Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus doesn't even acknowledge the request of the Greeks to see him. It's not because he doesn't care about Greeks. Twelve verses later, Jesus is going to say, If I be lifted up from the earth in crucifixion, then I'll draw all peoples to myself. So the text doesn't give us any room to believe Jesus doesn't care about Greeks. But Jesus isn't necessarily impressed just because someone wants to see him. So, Andrew and Philip, I can just imagine, are sitting there wide-eyed thinking, okay, this is it. This is the birth of Jesus. Ministry is international. We're going global. First the Greeks, then who's next? And then Jesus doesn't even dignify the question. He doesn't even entertain the idea of even seeing the Greeks, right? Um, instead, he starts talking about his impending death. He uses this really weird cryptic language about unless a seed falls in the ground and dies, it can't live. Unless you lose your life, you can't save it. And then he says these words in verse 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's basically his response to this. You know, the beautiful thing about serving Jesus is you can't do it from a distance. To serve Jesus is to follow Jesus. The only way to serve him is to go where he's going. If you want to know where my servant is, you'll find her where I am. If you want to know where my servant is, you'll find him where I am. Doug Webster, who I think y'all know, he's a former professor of ours, he said this, Jesus isn't looking for admirers. He's looking for followers. Notice the wording. Um, you can put that verse back up. Notice the wording. It's not where my servants are. Um, I will be also, right? It's where I am, there will my servant be also. So it's not wherever you happen to be, that's where Jesus is, right? It's, no, I encourage you to come be where I am. Come be in the spaces, the places, the opportunities, and the moments where I'm at work. If you want to know where my servant is, you'll find her or him where I am. Luke um, 23 says this in verse 8. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he long desired to see him, because he had heard about him. He was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he, Jesus, made no answer. I wonder how many times over the centuries people have desired to see Jesus much like Herod desired to see Jesus, right? Fascinated by the stories surrounding Jesus. Interested by the lives touched by Jesus, but with no real inclination to serve Christ. With no intention to follow Christ. Now, 
Jesus just gives Herod the silent treatment in this story. He doesn't let his own mom and brothers come in. He doesn't even let the Greeks come see him. I mean, don't get me wrong. A pure-hearted desire to see Jesus is a beautiful thing. So let, let me like make sure you're not missing that. A pure-hearted desire to see Jesus is a wonderful thing. My prayer for Mosaic is that you guys echo the words of the Greeks. We desire to see Jesus. Amen? Let's partner that desire to see Jesus with a commitment to serve Christ. To be found where your master is found. Let's partner that desire to see Jesus with a commitment to hear the word of God and do it. That that devotional longing would be yours. Now, Luke will make it clear that there's always grace for the wayward daughter. There's a robe, there's a ring, there's a fatted calf for the wayward son. And the parable of the prodigal son, which is unique to Luke, is um, this reminder that there's a way back even when you have no deserving right to be in the Father's house. And the beauty of the gospel is that when you and I journey into the far country, there is one who can always say, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I'd be in my father's house, dwelling with my father every second? And when the affairs and the business of the world dominates you in your mental space, there's someone who always said, didn't you know I must be about my father's business? That's who we have in Jesus. And then we get re-gifted the call to hear the word of God and do it. And it doesn't crush you because Jesus has fulfilled it for us. We're going to transition to take communion. I think it's over here. And um, let me invite you to the table. This is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. So come, all of you who have faith in Christ, and join his people in this remembrance of Jesus. Come, you who feel far from God, and you who feel near. Come, you who feel clean, and you who feel dirty. Come, you that have been broken, and you who have been healed. Come, you who have been here often, and you who have not been here very many times. Come, you of every race, Come women, come men, come children who know our Savior. For the sinless life that you should have lived has been lived for you by Christ. And the guilty death that you should have died has been died for you by Christ. We bring nothing to this table except faith. So come with empty and outstretched hands to receive the body and blood of Christ given for you. Let's receive communion.